This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. A busy morning this morning of election results property news and a little bit of an eye on investing in China. On the latter, uh, the Chinese government has come out with mammoth stimulus for the stock market. We have spoken to a man who knows a thing or two about investing in Asia, Gary Dugan, Chief Investment Officer of Delma Capital. Richard always calls him a veteran investor. We decided that might be rude, so I shall not. Uh, Speaking of a man who doesn't mind being rude, Donald Trump. He has won the New Hampshire primary as wildly expected. We have spoken to Professor Adam Ramey, Associate Professor of Political Science and indeed Head of Political Science as well, that programme at New York University Abu Dhabi, to get his reaction and what's likely to happen with Trump and Nikki Haley next. If indeed anyone can predict these things. We've also had two big property interviews this morning. Sandra Henke for the COO of Property Monitor and the man in charge of data, uh, Cavendish Maxwell, has been in to talk about property records being set in 2023, but not in the ready property market, which has sucked up most of the oxygen in the room. Quietly, stealth records being set for off-plan property. Zan also has our number of the day, a staggering one when it comes to how many properties were actually launched last year. If you felt like it was one a day, you were nearly right. I've also been speaking to a man with a slightly different plan when it comes to renting properties. Abdullah Al-Shabani is the founder of Alpha Better Properties. They've got a building down in Maidan that they are running an auction for when it comes to letting tenants grab an apartment. The bidding is going on right now. We've asked him why. We will get to Trump and Haley and reaction to that shortly. First up, though, lots of local stories to digest. Earnings season getting underway. And so far, so very, very good. Just remind us, Tom, yesterday was the Islamic banks taking centre stage, both Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Numbers were great, weren't they? Yeah, they weren't off bad, uh, Dini. Dubai Islamic Bank reporting a 24.1% increase in 23 fiscal net profit. Uh, net profit attributable to the owners of the bank for the 12 months, the end of December, standing at around about $1.9 billion. We'll take that. Uh, they were reporting, of course, to the DFM income from Islamic fancying investing transactions for the reporting period, also surging almost by half, 46.7%. Uh, commissions fees, foreign exchange income also jumping as well, as did the lender's yearly income from properties as well. So all up, up and away. That was the story. Uh, in Dubai, just north of the border, down in Abu Dhabi. Same story and then some. Um, We have seen a 29% annual increase in net profit the fourth quarter of last year for Adib. Net profit um, to the end of December climbing to more than 1.5 billion dirhams. That's what, around about $408 million or so. Gross revenue was up. Uh, That was up about 33%. Bank's full-year profit jumping by 45%. Uh, as well. So good numbers coming out of both of the Islamic banks. One of the things that the chairman of Dubai Islamic Bank mentioned was the booming Dubai economy. Now he is His Excellency Mohammed Al-Shebani, as well as being chairman of the bank. He's a very important player here in Dubai. He's quite low profile. You don't get speeches from him, but he's a very important player. He's the managing director of Investment Corporation of Dubai, the big sovereign wealth fund here. And he also sits uh, politically, he has a very important role within government, director general 
of the ruler's court. Okay, so he's a player. He says the UAE economy, not just Dubai, continues to expand. Despite tightening global conditions, the UAE in general, Dubai in particular, expanding. Good time for real estate, good time for the economy and good time for banks here in the UAE. Here's Gary Dugan, Chief Investment Officer, Dalma Capital. They are, and uh, they have this great opportunity globally of um, you know being able to lend money out of higher interest rates and also take in money and still and, and attract huge deposits. So that's really been one story. But here in the region, of course, has been it's been transformational over the last couple of years with the huge movement of people into this region and the growth that we've seen in places like Saudi. All good news for your financial sector. Biggest bank in Dubai, Emirates MBD, has its board meeting today. So we're expecting those numbers. Shortly, maybe later on to today, maybe tomorrow. What else can I tell you? Earnings overnight from Netflix. So record, not record, better than expected revenue, better than expected subscriber numbers, and they bought this. The world's most famous arena. Welcome everyone to Monday Night Raw. From Friday Night Smackdown, the undisputed WWE Universal Champion Roman Reigns. And when the energy is New York, the energy is raw. Wrestling. On Netflix, Brandy Scott. Yeah, so they're calling it live streaming. This is the biggest um, sports deal that Netflix has done so far. The streaming wars continue um, as they look to pull away from Warner Brothers Discovery um, and from Disney as well. Um, they're calling it live streaming. I think if you're showing a live sports event and you've got ads on some of your channels, that's just television, is it not? It's not sport. Ooh. It's entertainment. Okay. Because the outcome is predetermined. Yes. Um... It's not like wrestling. We like we grew up with, you know, proper wrestling, giant haystacks and Big, Big Daddy. Oh, I remember them <laughs> Bellevue in Manchester. Then stock car racing in the evening. What a night that was! There's nothing organised. There's no. There's no predetermined results in that, was there? Eh? Wrestling fixed? <laughs> Surely not. Uh, but yeah, now I would proffer that this is. Uh, entertainment um, uh, and it is entertainment and you know the, the debates rage about whether it's sport and entertainment we can have that debate about others but this is pure entertainment and it is it is an amazing product when you accept it like that you know generates billions the world over well it's the Not biggest my cup of tea. live anything then biggest investment in live anything that Netflix has made whether that is entertainment whether it's an awards ceremony or anything else yeah other big stories in the United States. Donald Trump appears to have won the New Hampshire primary, but Nikki Haley was close and she's not backing out yet. We've been getting some reaction from Professor Adam Ramey. He is a professor of political science at New York University, Abu Dhabi. And we've been asking him about the UAE's relationship. Donald Trump now looking very much the favourite to be the Republican candidate. It's not in the bag, but he's very much the favourite to be the Republican candidate. We asked him what kind of reaction are you expecting to that in Abu Dhabi? The, the UAE and the United States have a very close political relationship, and that has stood the test of time, irrespective of who's in the White House. I certainly think that, that during the Trump years, as you know, there was a very close relationship with the UAE and, and the Trump administration, particularly around uh, geopolitical issues like Iran, fostering the, the uh, ties that were necessary in order to uh, pull through the Abraham Accords, and of course, connections on trade and economic development. And when Biden came to power, I think that that, that relationship maintained, but perhaps less, perhaps a little less cordial uh, than it had been under Trump. More from Professor Adam Ramey throughout the show this morning. More from Nikki Haley and Donald Trump as well. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's talk investing in China now, joined in the studio by the Chief Investment Officer of Dalma Capital here in Dubai, Gary Du. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. The reason we've asked you to join us this morning is a couple of China stories. First of all, 
doom and gloom about the Chinese stock market. I'll throw a couple of headlines at you. CNN, Chinese stocks have lost $6 trillion in three years. Bloomberg, China sell-off leads to a record $38 trillion gap with US stocks. And then another headline, India overtaking Hong Kong as the world's fourth biggest stock market. I could continue. Chinese stocks have been beaten up badly in recent years. Yesterday, while we're on air, reports unconfirmed broke that China was planning stimulus in its stock market of $278 billion. That's more than quarter of a trillion dollars. So we thought, is now time to buy Chinese stocks at a discount? Gary? It probably is. I mean, as a, an investor over some decades, you know, when you, you want to be buying things when no one loves something. Um, but you've also got to see a catalyst for performance. So why should we like Chinese stocks? One pure valuation, a yield of four and a half, five percent and a P multiple of seven. That sounds interesting. Where's the catalyst coming? Well, we're told that the government's going to step in and start to buy the stock market. But we need more than that. And I think the reason why it's going to be perhaps more emphatic this time, I think the Communist Party feels under pressure. So when the Communist Party feels under pressure rather than the economy, that's when you get real action. And this could lead to quite a significant rally in this market from this level. You've been investing in China for, well, for many, many decades now. You've lived in Asia for a long time, in, in Singapore and other markets as well. China's had a great run economically over the past three decades or so. Why is the stock market not reflecting that? I think the problem was that it was done, uh, quite frankly, uh, as has been in the West, on a huge amount of debt. Now, in China at the moment, it's been called to account. We're seeing a massive resetting of the banking system and of the real estate sector. And that still has probably a decade of work out to happen. Now, why are we all picking on China? Well, because we haven't really seen the reality of it. For example, the United States, where we know there's a huge pending problem in the real estate sector. So China's got to deal with its problems, and it has to particularly deal with its problems in the real estate sector and its indebtedness. One other thing that spooks investors is regulatory could we call it interference from the Chinese government? I mean, all regulators interfere. That's kind of their job. For example, the tech companies, the video game companies, just one example a few weeks ago, China came out with new regulations about in-app purchases. Suddenly, shares of things like Tencent crater on the stock market because their business model is undermined. Is there a crackdown by the Chinese Communist Party against, for example, big tech stocks? And that makes investors wary, doesn't it? It does. And the, and the problem is the lack of dialogue with the market. So, you know, you might at the end of the day actually agree with some of the policies, you know, for example, trying to keep kids off, the, <laughs> off using the screens. But, you know, what you can't do is you just can't bring these to the table without warning. So if they improve the dialogue, people will buy in better to some of these policies. But that's a, a learning curve for the Communist Party and its leadership. So in terms of if we do want to play the Chinese market, if we listen to that and think, oh, price earnings ratio of just seven, that's very, very low. What do we do? Do we go out and buy just a Chinese market tracker fund? Full disclosure, that's what I did. But I'm very unimaginative. Do we try and stock pick? Or do we pay higher fees and, and get an actively managed fund? What's your China strategy? Well, I prefer to use active management because there are certain sectors um, in that ETF that you don't want to be holding at the moment. Say there's a reset in banking, there's a reset in real estate. It is quite difficult to find that active manager that has a long track record and a brand that you would believe in. But you won't go wrong. I mean, if you're going to go up 20%, the ETF's going to do um, you know, very well for you. 
An active, by the way, an active manager last year in China made a plus 50% return, even though the market was down, which just shows you there are opportunities for active managers out there. Let's look at some of the other stories that you're covering at the moment. Uh, Wall Street, record highs within the past 72 hours or so, uh, reflective of a booming economy or a bubble waiting to burst? No, I think people underestimated that the drop in inflation would increase people's spending power. So we've still got relatively good wage growth. And as we turned the year, consumers were out spending again. And that's why I think it's a, basically the story on Netflix squares with that, that people start to renew subscriptions that they probably have put in the dustbin because they couldn't afford them anymore. But people can afford more, more spending, more consumer, and that's good for GDP. One sector that I know you guys at Dalma Capital are focusing on is AI, because I was looking at your website last night and you make great play of it. This is what you guys say, your blurb. We foresee AI driving unparalleled efficiency and productivity. Dalma invests fervently in the AI sector. Why and how? Well, I think it's transformational. I remember, you know, my first AOL account, which I've still got when we had the Internet um, and we were able to send emails to each other. That was transformational for the following you know, five to 10 years. I think AI is the same. Now, we can be skeptical about some applications of AI, but, you know, just recently we did a recording of a meeting. And I have to say the minutes that were created by AI within seconds of that meeting saved me about three hours of work. So huge productivity tool. What is this magical app that, that did this? I've forgotten. Oh, Gary, <laughs> I mean, it's a public service. We'll, we'll get that information for you later on. But, but how do we play it? Do we buy shares of NVIDIA? That's the obvious play. It's what people have been doing for the past 18 months. Maybe that ship has sailed. What's the next NVIDIA? I think, well, I think it can be across the board, you know. So if you're sitting there with a mobile phone today, in the next uh, 24 months, all suppliers of, uh, of mobile phones are going to tell you you've got to get the AI-enabled one. So we'll all be changing our phones. Microsoft, with its software, will give you the AI-enabled 365. So there's going to be a huge upgrade of everything we do, and we're going to be told probably that our keyboard doesn't work anymore because it needs to have an AI button on it. So I think it's going to be transformational across the industry. Yes, some of those um, semiconductor stocks will do as well, but you can just buy the tech. Journalists like us, fund managers like you, out of a job, Gary? No, we have to reorientate ourselves. We have to embrace this. And, um, you know, I think there's still a human in there with an opinion on things. And I'm not so sure people are going to believe that, I hope, they believe the opinions of a machine. A couple of minutes left with you. UAE stocks, earnings season, banks looking good. They are. And uh, they have this great opportunity globally of um, you know being able to lend money out of higher interest rates and also take in money and still and, and attract huge deposits. So that's really been one story. But here in the region, of course, has been it's been transformational over the last couple of years with the huge movement of people into this region and the growth that we've seen in places like Saudi. All good news for your financial sector. Finally, a quick word on one of our top stories this morning, which is the New Hampshire primary. News this morning that Donald Trump has uh, reportedly won. All the US TV networks are calling it for him. And Nikki Haley, though, is still in the race. Let's hear from her now. I think he's mentally fit, but I think he's declining. And that's the, you know, look, do we really want two 80-year-old candidates running for president? Because the concern I have is look at Joe Biden two years ago. Look at how much he's declined in these two years. You have a, you have a surprising analysis, Gary, on Nikki Haley. Yeah, someone asked me in September last year who I thought would win. I said Nikki Haley, um, not just to be different, but I, I do think there's so many dynamics going on here, court appearances and whatever. She was the one Republican candidate that would hands down beat Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, 
she would. I'm not saying the Republican Party necessarily going to get behind her in the coming weeks and this election, but it could be that uh, you know Donald Trump gets side uh, railed or si- gets to sidelined with all of the uh, problems of his court appearances, and, and that will be my bet that that's what stops him. And then they revert to Nikki Haley, and she beats Biden. We will get you back on the 6th of November this year to see if that came true. For now, Gary, appreciate your time. Gary Dugan is the Chief Investment Officer at Dalma Capital here in Dubai. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. So Donald Trump appears to have won the New Hampshire primary. Here's the headline on the Associated Press. Trump wins New Hampshire GOP primary. And it adds the general election rematch now comes into view even though Nikki Haley has vowed to stay in the race. Going to get some reaction to this. First of all, let's hear from the main contenders. First of all, Nikki Haley. She has lost New Hampshire, uh, but she says she's still in the race. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Donald Trump has reacted to that. You know, we have to do what's good for our party. And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. And, you know, last last week we had a little bit of a problem. And if you remember, Ron was very upset because she ran up and she pretended she won Iowa. And I looked around, I said, didn't she come in third? Yeah, she came in third. Let's hear now from Professor Adam Ramey. He is Associate Professor of Political Science at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Joins us now live on the line from the UAE capital. Morning, Professor Ramey. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thanks very much indeed. You're waking up to this news as we are. What's your first reaction? Well, I mean, I think it's no big surprise that Donald Trump was going to win New Hampshire. I think it would have been a real shocker if Nikki Haley did. You know, and 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 Trump's got a point in one in one sense that you know Nikki Haley came in third in Iowa, and now she's coming second in New Hampshire, and talking as if she won. But I think that the reason why she's doing that is because the the wide expectation is that Trump was going to have a massive blowout in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think the big surprise so far in New Hampshire, and only about half the votes are are in at this point, is that Trump's lead over Nikki Haley is only about ten points. Um, which the polls were suggesting even even as late as just a couple of days ago, that Trump was going to win by high double digits, maybe even 20 points or more. And the fact that Nikki Haley, at least so far, is holding Trump to only 10 points, um, I think it's a big warning sign for Trump and it's because New Hampshire is a swing state and it's one that's going to be key uh, in, in, in the electoral math for him or whoever ends up becoming the uh, the winner of the 2024 election up ahead in November. So the next one is is Carolina, and that is Nikki Haley's home state. And the polls do give her a reasonable chance there. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, Nikki Haley was a successful governor in South Carolina. And, um, and, and of course, the South Carolina is a much more conservative state than New Hampshire is. New Hampshire is, a, 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 you know, when the U.S. politics, we call it a purple state because it's a state that can flip easily between Democrats or Republicans. Um, South Carolina is a much more conservative state. It's a state that I think favors Trump, perhaps more so than New Hampshire. But Nikki Haley does have a long political history in the state. She was the governor. She was a popular governor. And with a loss to Trump of, you know, 10 points, I mean, maybe it could even be high single digits when when all the votes are counted. Um, That could propel her with enough momentum to to put Trump in in a tough position. I mean, I think the longer Nikki Haley drags this race out, the worse it is for Trump. And I think that's why many Republican establishment figures are trying to 
coalesce around Trump. They don't want to have a long and drawn out battle. They want to focus everything on uh, on Biden in the fall. And, and, it, and even though Nikki Haley has outperformed expectations, I think even among more mainstream Republicans, several of them, uh, several notable people like Tim Scott, who was who is in the presidential race until recently, have come out recently and endorsed Trump because they want to put this race behind them and, and, and gear up toward the general election in the fall. Adam, let's talk about the economic aspect of this, because we are the business breakfast and that's what we tend to focus on. So much focus on personalities in this race. In terms of economic policies, was there any clear daylight between Trumponomics and Haleynomics? Was was the economy even a, a factor in this election in the primaries in New Hampshire? I mean, they do have differences in economic philosophies, but that didn't seem to really be at play. Most of what was what was dividing them was sort of the, the dimensions like character and 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 fitness for office. That certainly was how Haley was was pitching herself. But I mean, in terms of of, of economic policies, in terms of domestic economic policies, both of them want less regulation, lower taxes, a more business friendly environment domestically. Uh, but Haley is from the more traditional uh, uh, free trade wing of the Republican Party in terms of U.S.'s inter, uh, you know interaction with the rest of the world. Whereas Trump is you know Trump, he, he's that more populist uh, economic nationalist wing. Um, you know, make 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 the you know make the <laughs> America great again economically uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And if that has to come through through tariffs and, and various form of trade restrictions, then so be it. So what happens next in terms of the Democrats? Biden has got the nomination for the Democrats. He didn't actually run in New Hampshire because he's not contested. And yet looking at the sort of implied probabilities for this election of who's going to be the, 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 the Democratic candidate, Biden obviously the favourite. But Close second and equal second are Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, if anything happens to Biden and he pulls out. But he's equal with Michelle Obama as the next cab off the rank for the Democrats, if it isn't Joe Biden. What do you make of that? Uh, Well, you know, I think there's a few things to unpack there. I mean, the the reality is even among Democratic supporters of President Biden, there is an, you know, almost universal attitude that President Biden is old (laughs) and 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 and. You know, while th- there's a view that he needs to be reelected in order to prevent Trump from coming back to the White House, um, there there is a recognition that there needs to be some sort of generational change. Um, and if it's not going to be uh, uh, Joe Biden, Ka- Kamala Harris, the vice president, is not, uh, uh, interestingly enough, up there on that list. I think many look to to a younger generation of leaders. And frankly, the Obamas are still immensely popular. Uh, Michelle Obama still carries a huge amount of goodwill within the Democratic base and within the country as a whole. And I think you you, you see something, you know, it's it's interesting. You see, you know, when you look at President Bill Clinton, for example, uh, his wife, Hillary Clinton, had political aspirations of her own and became a U.S. senator and then secretary of state and attempted to run for president. unsuccessfully, but she was not very personally popular. I think Michelle Obama has so far not demonstrated any serious interest in in running for higher office, but still maintains a tremendous amount of popularity and goodwill that she could parlay into a future political career. She hasn't indicated any any intentions of doing such anytime soon, but it would be very interesting to see if that unfolds in the years to come. But I think just generally speaking on both sides, uh, I think after this election, there's the, you know, whoever wins, there's very much an attitude of we need to get beyond uh, uh, the, the 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 boomer generation. We need to 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 turn the 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 mantle of power over to somebody else and and bring in a fresh new set of faces and ideas. 
A final quick word on the reaction that we're going to get in the UAE, particularly in the capital, Abu Dhabi, where you are this morning. We know that the the UAE administration was very close to the Trump administration, both to Trump himself, but also to his his wider coterie. For example, Jared Kushner, regular visitor during the presidency to the UAE, and since then, strong business ties between the Trump family, the Kushner family, and many investors here in the UAE. What kind of reaction are you expecting in Abu Dhabi? Oh, I think, look, the, the UAE and the United States have a very close political relationship, and that has stood the test of time, irrespective of who's in the White House. I certainly think that that during the Trump years, as you note, there was a very close relationship uh, uh, with the UAE and 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 the Trump administration. Uh, you know, particularly around uh, geopolitical issues like Iran, the the help you know fostering the the the, the uh, ties that were necessary in order to uh, to pull through the Abraham Accords, and of course, connections on trade and economic development. And when Biden came to power, I think that that, that relationship maintained, but perhaps less, perhaps a little less cordial uh, uh, than it had been under Trump, though with the bring uh, things back in the spotlight in the region with the ongoing conflict in Gaza, I think that those lines of communication and the importance of the UAE-US relationship, even in a democratic administration, has, be- has been brought back to the fore. Professor Adam Ramey of New York University, Abu Dhabi, really appreciate your insights today. This is The Business Breakfast. Coming up next, is it time to invest in China with shares at rock bottom? Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are talking to a real estate developer now doing something a little bit different. The guys at Alphabet Properties are leasing out a new residential building on Maidan Avenue, M77, but they're doing it through an invitation-only online auction. Very pleased to be joined by the founder of Alphabet Properties, Abdullah Al-Shabani. Abdullah, good morning. Thanks good morning. for coming in. Good morning, Brandy. Good morning. So why are you doing it like this? Well, we found it the most transparent way of uh, of releasing our rental units to the market. Uh, we sort of had wanted to be as sort of credible, as transparent as possible with our tenants. And the uh, the thought arised when we had a lot of interest in our property as it was coming up in construction. And we sort of felt that we didn't want to keep raising the prices on people and, and affecting our credibility and brand. So we felt it would be a lot more transparent to put the platform on- online, um, allow people to bid uh, online on the website and sort of vet the tenants and, and have this exclusive sort of uh, you know, bidding system. Uh, we have sort of a collage of tenants and, and, and a portfolio of tenants prior to 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 this platform coming online as well. So we, we felt that we wanted to conduct an invite-only list, put the uh, auction online, allow tenants to to bid on, on the platform. Okay, so it went live on Sunday. Talk yes. me through how it works. So uh, initially, it's an invite-only sort of guest list. So you'd be invited by Alphabeta to be part of the platform. Um, we launched on Sunday, so a lot of the uh, we had an, sort of an open house day at the at the venue at the residence, so people could come and see the unit that they're interested in, and um, we so we we had those closed door viewings, um, and once they sort of determined what unit they'd like, uh, they can go online and uh, bid on the platform on that particular unit of their choice. When you say vetted, what are you vetting for? Sort of, we're looking at you know the it's. You know, most contracts are sort of a marriage between two individuals. So we, what we want to do is we want to find the right, the, the right sort of tenant for the right sort of landlord. And us as a boutique property developer, we try to, 
you know, we want successful relationships in, in even in, in terms of uh, tenancy. And we want people to feel comfortable in where they live. And I think that we want, we, you know, we want the best experience for both the landlord and the tenant. And we feel that it's it's good to, to sort of gauge the market and see where, uh, you know, people also want to, you know, be in a building that's quite exclusive and the people around, they feel protected, they feel safe, they feel sort of uh, around the right sort of, uh, you know, the right the right crowd as well and, and, and like-minded people. So we, we try to, you know, have that in our buildings. We want to, that 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 lovely tenant experience, you know. Okay, but I'm interested in the criteria. What would rule someone in or rule them out? Uh, well, we don't really rule people out. It's more on the lines of, um, I think that's a bit... Uh, it's not really a rule out. It's sort of just, uh, you know, these are exclusive residences and the price point is a bit higher than the market, but that's sort of the alphabet of strategy. We try to have the best building in every given location. So because of that, and we have a very limited offering. So because of that, we sort of, the the, the, the pricing, and, and we try to, you know, these these particular units are very spacious. They're, you know, 1,100 square foot is our minimum for a one bedroom. And someone coming from downtown Dubai, uh, you know, at the you know a similar price point, finding that in Maidan is 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 excellent. So so you know we try to, but because of that, they come at quite a, a higher rate than you would expect for the traditional unit. In would Maidan. I have to earn a certain amount to be included? Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's and an, you have to earn a certain salary. It would just be because we have a lot of different types of tenants. We have tenants that are business owners. We have tenants that are. Um, you know, executives in high in, in companies. We have, I mean, they, it is. I mean, we what we try to do is we try to create the best building for any given area. So even if you're not necessarily an alphabet tenant for, say, one of our Jumeirah properties, uh, Maidan might be um, more appropriate and more affordable uh, for for your budget. So it's not that we um, want to. Uh, com- you know, you can't join the alphabet family, let's say. But Maidan is definitely our entry point at the moment. We may you know, pursue other uh, areas in Dubai that we feel uh, need a, a good offering, good value for money offering. Um, but at the, and, and that might come at a lower price point. So it's not necessarily that we are um, saying that, oh, if you don't earn a certain uh, amount, you're, you're, you can't be part of the Alphabet of family. But it's just that we want to create an exclusive and limited offering and something that's good value for money, something that pay a bit more attention to, it's a lifestyle, you know. It's it pay a bit more attention to the experience of the tenant, and where they live, and and have pride in, in sort of, um, you know, where they live, and, and and the quality of the product and the service they're getting, you know, with with the whole uh, landlord and tenant experience, and have it be a healthy, enjoyable relationship rather than you know um, anything otherwise. So that's how we 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 sort of look at it. So what kind of prices are we talking? I mean, for the one bed, um, we I think I, I believe our bid starting at the smallest one bed is about which which isn't really that small. It's about a thousand, uh, I think five thousand one hundred uh, square foot. So that would be uh, around eighty five thousand uh, dirhams annually um, as a starting bid, and then I could we could see that uh, on the rent now as low as a hundred and five. I want to say one hundred and ten thousand dirhams a year so that would be the range of the bidding uh, on that particular unit but we have offering in the building up to uh, 350,000 dirhams a year. But am I right in thinking that you've actually capped how much the bids can go up to? Yes correct we have capped them. The reason we've done that is this is our first 
uh, trial. I believe it's the first in Dubai that's tried to do a bidding system on rental properties. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure auctions have existed on, 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 on for sale units. But because of that, we sort of felt that we didn't want an unfair sort of playing field with the, with the people that came early. And we wanted to make sure that the units, you know, uh, you know similar units were, were closing at, at, at a similar range of prices, just so it's fair for the tenants. Okay, but if they're kept, doesn't that mean that you'll just take the bids that are at the top of the cap? Well, um, so the auction's running for two weeks. And we, what we've placed as a cap is the rent now price. So we call it the rent now instead of a buy now price. And if you select the rent now price, yes, you do close the auction on that particular unit. But we do have 77 units. We did see this on number of units. So we had uh, we have 77 units available and around 25 units were closed on the first day. So we've already reached 30% occupancy on the building due to the demand, yes. And the rest of uh, the units are, we see a lot of activity on the other units. So the bids are going. Um, and we expected a slowdown in, in, in the middle of the week and uh, it to pick up again towards the end of the, uh, the, bidding, uh, the, bidding, the bidding, which is towards the end of the next two weeks. But yes, any of those units can close immediately on the rent now. So, How much interest, how many bids have you had all together? Um, I would say that we see, the thing is, we allow for incremental bids of 1,000 dirhams annually. So we've seen at least... Um, I would say over to maybe, I want to say around 150 maybe incremental bids over the last two days or three days. So people are told you've been outbid, they bid again. Yes. Okay, so how many people have taken part? Um, I would say we, if I'm not mistaken, we're about 120 um, individuals are are, are registered on, 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 on the the guest list on on the building platform so they can come and bid immediately. Um, A number of them just came on on the first day and and, and selected their unit uh, as right now, but uh, but, uh, they they can still bid on other units if they're interested. And where, very quickly, 20 seconds, where are they from? Oh, I mean, the demographic is is wide. I mean, we've got, uh, I mean, around 40%, interestingly, 40%, 60% of the building is Emirati nationals. Um, uh, but and then we have uh, a wide range of uh, other uh, nationalities from from all over. So we don't really look at that really as a demographic. Look, Fascinating you know. stuff. We look forward to hearing how it closes. Abdullah Al Shabani is the founder of Alphabet Properties. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We're looking at the property sector and we are talking numbers, but not the numbers that we've been talking so far. It was a record year uh, for the sales of ready property, um, something that I feel like we have discussed ad nauseum in the last week. Um, But quietly, there were a few records broken for off-plan property as well, as you can discover in the latest Property Monitor report, which we have taken a sneak peek at. We are joined by Jean Jahinke, the man who has written that from Cavendish Maxwell and from Property Monitor. Morning, Jean. Good morning. So talk to me about the stealth records almost that have been broken by off-plan whilst Ready Property has got all the headlines. The stealth records. Well, uh, if we looked at how many units were actually launched, new units put into the market by developers last year, all-time record, you're looking at 96,000 units. That's up from about 55,000 last year. Huge jump in that. So your increase of about, say, 80% more units coming on, um, and the value of those is about the same, a little bit less, about 75%. uh, From about 130 developers, um, and in a market where you probably feel like there's a launch happening every day, well, it's not far off. Every 26 hours last year, there was a project launch. 
That is an incredible number. It's a, it's a very incredible number. Every 20, it's just done, it's 25 point something. Every 26 hours a project was launched, so about 300, less than 350 for the year. That's projects spread across all price points, all communities in Dubai from those 130 developers. Talk to me about the projects and the floor plans themselves. It has felt like newer projects have smaller floor plans than the existing ones. Am I ignoring, am I imagining that? No, you're not. Um, I was going to write an article called Shrinking Sizes because it has been a tale of shrinking sizes. But if you look at most markets around the world, same things happen. My background was New York and you saw over the years, apartments got smaller and smaller as developers look to maximize their profitability on buildings. Yep. So yes, they have gotten smaller. You're not seeing your, say, 1,700 to 2,000 square foot two bedrooms anymore. You're seeing them around 1,200 to 1,500. One bedrooms you're seeing go down to as low as 500 square foot, which most people would argue is a studio. Um, so you have seen it in some of the projects shrinking. Um, in villas and townhouses, it's not shrunk by as much, um, but there's also less of those coming to market. But 85% of what came was launched last year was apartments. And you're starting to see that migrate away from your big master development communities that EMA is doing or Demax doing. It's the smaller periphery ones. So your JVC has always been popular. Arjan, Marjan, um, Dubai Land Residential Complex. You're seeing that with smaller projects coming in with more, we'll call them an economy footprint for those unit sizes. Uh, economy, but what about the price? What have we seen happen to the price per square foot? Probably not as lined with economy price point as much as you'd expect. Um, it's varied. If you took, um, let's take Arjun. You probably have in there a price point that used to be sub 1000 in the resale market. With all these new launches coming on, pushing it up to 1200, 1300, 1500 a square foot, yet the size is being slightly smaller. The quality of these buildings, though, is probably markedly different than those that were launched 10 years ago. There are much better quality for the most part what you're seeing coming onto the market. Some of these didn't have pools. Every apartment coming with a pool in some of the Samana developments, which is a unique concept. I don't know how practical in all regards, um, but they're doing more things and much greater amenities in these buildings as well. What does that mean for the service fees that people will pay? Well, if you're putting... Pools and extra amenities, they've obviously got to be paid for by the community at whole. So you are seeing those fees tick up. They're probably in the teens for most of these buildings. Low teens, 13, 14, 15 a square foot. Throw on a branded component to that and you're quickly jumping up probably to the 20s and even higher. Which has been one of the big themes of 23, hasn't it? It has. And I'd also debate what constitutes branded residence um, and paying for that. A typical branded residence where you've got lifestyle amenities and services that are ongoing. That's really a branded residence that had been dominated by the hotel brands previously because that's what they do on a daily basis. Taking something else like, and uh, not knocking an automobile brand or others, but a fashion brand, what are you actually getting? If it's just initial furnishings, well, great, that's when you bought it, but how's that bode for resale? What are you getting month to month and ongoing as far as services, feel and quality within that building? Are you just paying for it up front or you're getting it long term as well? One of the other things you mention in this report is a change in who's launching the off-plan projects. So 130 developers, right? We've got five big ones and you've got about another 10 mainstays. There's a lot of other ones coming into the market or that have been in the market before but are returning, which have 
previously maybe launched a project, two projects. Now they're launching two or three a year. You've got some that are up to one a month. I mean, Bingardi has always been, they're, they're probably in that, that next set of 10. Um, they have launched so many projects and really diversified their scale. Samana is another one that's really been on the up and coming. Um, then you've got a couple of others that have never been in the market. Maybe the developers in other markets, they've come in and dipped their toes into the water for the first time. And then you've got some smaller ones that have never been in the market, maybe haven't developed anywhere, but are entering the market here for the first time. And international developers as well, international names. International developers that have a track record developing elsewhere in their home countries, coming here and starting to build a footprint in this market. Maybe not coming up with a huge launch to begin with, but coming up with a smaller one. They've got land acquisitions and JVs lined up to continue that pipeline. Okay. Tom has a theory that we are seeing the handover dates being pushed out for projects. You might disagree with him about whether or not wrestling is sport or entertainment, but is he right on this? Sports entertainment. Um, so developers have to declare a anticipated completion date with RERA and advertise that to everyone. There is a grace period that is allowed between six to 12 months, and there are compensation mechanisms in place for purchases if that's not met. Um, what we're tracking with projects launched in the last couple of years, a lot of them are on schedule, right? There's not ones falling behind because really seeing lack of funds or other things. We're talking the last sort of, say, after COVID. Most of those are there. You've got others pre that that are still playing a little bit of catch up, getting back on schedule to where they were. But are the actual initial dates given getting more generous, having more slack in them, I guess is what we're No, if anything, I think like some of the launches you see now are pretty aggressive in what they plan to deliver. They're not putting out four or five years. They're three years and a little bit more, some even sooner than that. Well, speaking of aggressive, tell me about the trend that we've seen in the last 12 months for payment plans. So... It's a sign of strength in the off-plan market from a developer's standpoint. If we look pre-COVID, you saw payment plans that were very little during construction and larger amounts at handover and even a whole lot more that had post-handover payment plans. Post-handover payment plans have rapidly evaporated in the market unless you're a newer or smaller developer. The percentage paid during construction has consistently grown. EMAR is 90-10 now. Right? They're definitely at the top of the market. They can do it as that mainstay developer. A lot more, the averages probably move now to about 60, 40, 70, 30. Um, on average, we're seeing where that larger portion during construction. If you look at some of the smaller and newer developers, a lot of them are building on what Danub started in the market in Oro 24, the 1% payment plan. Getting that in smaller, more manageable amounts throughout construction, but still a lot more during construction than at handover. Uh, 20 seconds left with you. Is this year going to be busier or slower on the off-plan launch? The launches, it's going to be about as busy uh, for at least the first six months of the year. We're already tracking a whole bunch that supports that. How the other months pan out, we have to wait and see. What always tips a market from that bull to a bust market, bust may be the wrong word, but to tipping over to slowdown is going to be excessive supply. Will that happen this year? Let's see. Zandra Henke, CEO, Property Manager. He's also the man who does the data for Cavendish Maxwell. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Yeah, good to catch up with the team from AGB. I'm ribbing off Business Insider now as we give you some more insight into what's going on in the world of business with the team from AGBI. And let's return to a story that we've already addressed this morning. We spoke, to, we took some legal advice earlier from Clyde and Co. Sarah was kind enough to join us about um, the uh, work permit and visa issues that are doing the rounds at the moment. But 
Um, we've also seen some significant changes here in the UAE to requirements for a golden visa residency programme, uh, widening access for investors there. Uh, senior reporter at AGBI is Megan Morani, who's been kind enough to join us live here in studio. Megan, thanks so much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so what are said changes to the golden visa requirements? Well, there's been no official announcement yet, but AGBI can confirm after speaking with multiple sources that the UAE has removed the minimum down payment requirement to be eligible for a golden visa by property investment. So previously, you had to buy a property worth 2 million dirhams uh, at minimum, and you if you were on a payment plan or on a mortgage, you had to complete a 1 million dirham uh, payment to be able to get the visa. Now that cap has been removed, which means you still have to invest in a 2 million dirham property, but potentially you could make a 50,000 dirham down payment on an off-plan property uh, worth 2 million and uh, get your visa immediately. Why is, why does this matter? Well, the implications are huge um, from two two sides. One, um, the golden visa has been seen sort of as something that was only accessible to the wealthy, mm. um, you know, a segment of the population. We've seen about um, one hundred and fifty thousand visas issued in twenty twenty two, which is not very much, uh, not a big percentage of the population. In twenty twenty three, that number went up by about fifty two percent in the first half, but still not a huge number. This now widens access um, for a huge additional demographic uh, by removing that minimum threshold and um, perhaps people who were on the fence about investing in property here um, it changes it changes things for them I was going to suggest that yeah this could have a, a very significant impact on the real estate sector but then again I thought well hang on does the real estate sector need a sig- significant impact at the moment I mean what's this going to do to house buying here Very interesting Tom um so of course we always hear uh, varied reports is the property price uh, prices going up are they going down when when will it change um we heard Hussein Sajwani from uh, the founder of Damak at Davos saying of course the market's going to go up but he's a developer he has to say that uh, SNP told um, me last year that they were expecting a slow down in 2024, um, about a 10% drop in property prices. And this was largely due to the new supply coming onto the market. So they were expecting about 40,000 units, uh, new units um, coming on in 2024, which is a lot, um, which creates the potential challenge of oversupply unless it's offset by a population growth. So this is, um, you know, this change in the rule is, as one real estate um, a broker told me, sort of the ace card the government has uh, has pulled out um, to preempt any potential slowdown. So um, it's all a function of the other, I guess. It's, it's clever, that's for sure. Let's Definitely. stick with visas if we can, from golden visas to other visas. Few rumours doing the rounds. And again, we were we were talking about these alerts coming through from the Ministry of Human Resources and Emeritization a little bit earlier on about the issuing of visas for certain nationalities or rather sort of the drive towards diversity. What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so there was a lot of rumor, uh, rumors and some panicked misreporting around this targeting Indians and South Asian nationals. Uh, again, we would like to confirm AGBI uh, spoke to several sources and confirmed that um, it's not targeted at any particular nationality. Mm. Indians and South Asians just happen to make up the majority of the population. Um, Indians make up about 35%. So it would only be natural that that would be a majority workforce in certain companies. So um, as part of this rule, which is not a new rule, by the way, it's been around uh, for a while. It's a demographic diversification rule, which is part of the mainland companies classification rule, uh, which is to encourage diversity in the workforce. And there are incentives to do that. So if you do make that diversity um, sort of makeup in your company, you might get preference on certain tenders or incentives in terms of discounts for your business. Um, so this has been around for a while, um, but it is being more actively implemented at the moment. Again, there's been no official announcement. It's an evolving story. But what we are hearing is that there will be new announcements and perhaps amendments to that rule um, quite soon. So watch this space. Yeah, because it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, and just to reiterate exactly what you're saying there, these are pop-up notifications that are coming through from the ministry at the moment. These are not uh, hard and fast rules per se at present. They're, they're, they're gentle reminders uh, to employers out there. Yeah, and, and you know, it depends on uh, each. It's a case by case in some ca in some instances, right? It depends on how large your company is. It also depends on the sector. Obviously, there's um, difference a difference in the construction sector for for example, with uh, the labor workforce. So um, it's not, uh, what we can confirm is that it's not targeting any particular nationality as yeah. the rumors claimed. And it is not a new rule. It is perhaps being implemented more actively Revisited. now. Yes. <laughs> Mega Morani, good to see you. Thanks so much indeed for coming into the Thank studio. Thank you for much having appreciate me. Mega is, of course, senior reporter at AGBI, who we catch up with on a regular basis. Do check out all these latest stories on their website. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.